Today's passage is from the book of Luke, starting from chapter 18. That's page, page 1052 of the Church Bibles. Page 1052, Luke chapter 18 from verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honour your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad, because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. This is God's word to us today. Thank you very much, Natalie. Good morning, everyone. Shall we just pray before we begin? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We're grateful for it. Father, we thank you for this account of Jesus' encounter with a rich ruler. Help us, Father, to know the depths of our need for Jesus this morning. And we pray that we would leave here loving him more than anything else we have. In his name we pray. Amen. Now, in some parts of Africa, monkeys are real pests. We think of them here as quite cute. They're playful. They swing. They make funny noises. But if you're a farmer in some parts of Africa, you will think the exact opposite if your crisps, crops even, are at risk of being destroyed by monkeys. So um, African farmers throughout the centuries have used a way, have developed a way of capturing monkeys They bore a hole into a tree, just the right size for a monkey's hand to go into. Then they fill it with sugar or sweets or nuts. And here, monkey comes along and he's drawn to the hole. And to his delight, inside, there are treats. So he reaches in and grabs hold of it. But now, he's got a problem. His hand has become clenched and cannot get it out. Unless, of course, he drops the sweets but then he wouldn't have them. And so Monkey's stuck. He wants the sweets, but he also wants his freedom. Now, monkeys aren't clever enough to know that the situation is is far less than ideal, and at any point, a farmer 
might come along, and that is the end of a monkey. Just like the monkey's desires for sweets and sugars and nuts, we too have desires for lots of good things in our lives that could, if we hold on to them too tightly, result in us being trapped and stuck and ultimately dead. You'll remember, if you've been with us over the past few weeks, that Jesus, at this point, is on his way to Jerusalem and ultimately the cross. And in this passage and the ones around it, Jesus is showing us the kind of people that inherit the kingdom of God. In the verses just before this, he says some astonishing things, things that would have shaken his listeners and made them think, did he really just say that? The kingdom of God belongs to such as these little children, babies. And anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Did Jesus just say that in order for people to receive eternal life, they must be as weak, as helpless, and as dependent as a baby? Yeah, that's exactly what he said. What does he, what does he mean by that? Well, babies can offer nothing. They can do nothing to keep themselves alive. They can't even hold their own head up, let alone find a job, clean themselves, rustle up a meal, dress themselves. They're, they're helpless and dependent. And so it is with those that enter the kingdom of God. They can do nothing but be utterly dependent on Jesus Christ. They can't work enough to enter the kingdom. They can't clean themselves of their sin. They can't feed themselves with the bread of life. They can't take off sin and put on holiness. Those that enter the kingdom of God do so because they are helpless and rely totally on Christ for their salvation. Then along comes this rich ruler. Now the disciples probably got a bit excited when he turns up. Here is someone who is rich, maybe rich enough to fund Jesus' ministry. He's a ruler, so he must have some kind of political influence. I mean, this is the kind of guy we want on our side and in your kingdom, isn't it right, Jesus? And so when, Jesus, when he asks Jesus a really good question, this question here, and it is a good question, I think it comes from a a genuine desire to know. He's not trying to catch Jesus out here. Perhaps he's seeking one great thing to do which will guarantee his inheritance. Perhaps he's lacking assurance of it. And so when he asks Jesus this, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You can just imagine his disciples thinking, Jesus, just a simple answer to this one, yeah? This guy could be quite valuable to us. But of course, Jesus is not in the slightest bit concerned about any of that. In fact, he tells him to let go of his wealth, to give it up. That's the first part of a sentence we'll be building on the screen behind us as we go through this passage to help us understand it and apply it this morning. Let go of your wealth. Now, Jesus knows this man's heart as he knows all of our hearts. And he gives him the answer which is most likely to shine a light on the recesses, the dark places of this rich man's soul. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, good was a very strange word for this rich ruler to use. It isn't for us. Of course, we use it all the time. But back then, the word good was reserved only for God. In the Old Testament, it's a 
consistently repeated phrase, God is good. Nobody else can make that claim. They are not like God, always consistently good. In Jesus' day, even the best rabbis were not called good. So why does he call Jesus good? Perhaps he's trying to flatter him. Maybe he's just a bit thoughtless. Maybe he did genuinely see something divine in Jesus. I'm not really sure. I don't think the passage tells us. But Jesus uses that word to probe into the man's soul. It's almost like he's saying, whilst whilst we're on the subject of good, here is how good you need to be to inherit eternal life. And he gives him the second half of the Ten Commandments, verse 20. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Notice here that Jesus is only giving the commandments that relate to other people. So if you were to summarize the Ten Commandments, you would break them in half. The first half would be love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. And the second half would be love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus is trying to get the ruler to reflect, do I have the goodness I need to inherit eternal life? But he doesn't really spend any time reflecting at all. He simply says confidently, well, all these things I've kept since I was a boy. Now, he doesn't, obviously doesn't understand the spiritual depths of the commandments, that, that you can break them in your heart and in your thoughts, even if you don't outwardly do them. And of course, whilst confident in his answer, he, like everyone, like all of us, will certainly be a breaker of the first half of the commandments too. So Jesus responds again in verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And it's at this point, Jesus is shining the the, the most clear light into the depths of this man's soul. This man loves wealth. He adores his riches. Money makes this man's world go round. And if he were to give it all away to the poor, well, then he would really be loving his neighbor as himself. Jesus doesn't say to this rich man, you need to, you will only inherit uh, eternal life if you are saved by grace, which, which is true, of course, for all of us. But this man does not think he needs grace. Jesus is saying to him, I want you to love God, me, and I want you to love your neighbor enough to follow me. I want you to let go of your wealth in order that you can take hold of me. But we know he wasn't able to do that. In fact, it says he was very sad at hearing Jesus' words. What Jesus has said here has cut to the reality of this man's heart. Money for him is an idol and one which he cannot possibly let go of. It's the thing he loves the most. In fact, it's such a a big idol. Jesus tells him the only possible remedy for his idolatry is to get rid of all of it. Give it all away so that it can no longer have mastery over you. Let go of your wealth. We do just need to pause at this point because it's important we're all very clear on this. Jesus does not ask everyone who he invites to follow him to give away all that they have. Jesus does not everyone, um, he doesn't call everyone to a life of poverty. If you just think back through 
through scripture, people like Abraham, David, Boaz, Lydia, all these people had money, businesses, and yet they were faithful followers of God. So Jesus, in challenging this rich ruler, is to give it all away, is shining a light on this man's primary attachment. Let's, for example, just remember what Jesus says to the woman at the well. She asks him uh, to give her water that wells up to eternal life. And Jesus says to her, go and find your husband. But she, she can't because she's had five husbands. And the man she's living with at the moment is not her husband. Wealth is not a problem for this woman. Her primary attachment, the thing she desires most, is, is love. See, Jesus does not address everyone in the same way, but he does show us how all individually we are in need of him. And so we do need to be clear, Jesus is not calling everyone to a life of poverty, but he's, he's pulling back the curtain on what this man's soul is dependent upon, the thing he's attached to most, his money. And he's so dependent upon it, he's, he's, he's like that monkey grasping hold of sweets in a tree. He's, he's unable to let it go, and in doing so, He's condemning himself. Jesus' response to this man naturally leads us to probe our souls in a similar way. Do we hold on to money so tightly that our heart's desire is for it, rather than for the inheritance of eternal life? Does it consume our thoughts? Are we constantly striving for more of it? Is it what motivates us above everything else? Do, do we desire the comfort it falsely promises? Does it give us assurance? Is it Lord over us so much so that following Christ, well, that is just secondary? Those are important questions. Not easy to answer, of course, but important. If you're not sure what the answer to those questions is for you, here are a couple of diagnosis questions which might help you. Over the next year, are you prepared to let go of your money by giving so generously that you cannot go on holiday, perhaps giving to a missionary as well instead so that they can? Would you be prepared to do that? Remember that Jesus sacrificed. He he didn't just give up part of what he had on the cross. He, He gave it all. And if we're not giving to the level that affects our lifestyle what we eat or what we buy, is it a sacrifice for us or, or, or hold, are we holding on to it? Second question, would someone notice from looking at your bank statements that you were a follower of Christ? Would it be obvious when they see your outgoings that a priority for you is actually giving up of, of letting go of your money? Just a couple of questions then for you to think about further on this afternoon. And the reason it is important to reflect on this is what Jesus says in the next couple of verses and the second part of our sentence, because it is impossible for it to save you. Verse 24 and 25. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. This is a hard saying, isn't it? And and, and Jesus really meant this. 
In fact, it's, it's so hard that people have just tried to water it, water it down. Some have argued that the eye of a needle was a, a small, tiny gate in the wall in Jerusalem that you kind of had to bend down to get through. But there, there was no evidence in archaeology or literature that such a gate existed. It's just a false interpretation. Some people have, have argued that the word, word camel is so close to another word, meaning rope, that Jesus actually probably meant rope. And perhaps with a bit of force, you could get a rope, bit of rope through the eye of a needle. But no, Jesus is de- deliberately picking the largest animal these people would ever have seen and the smallest man-made object to make his point. It is impossible. We might use the phrase, it's a snowball's hell in chance these days. The point is the same. It can't be done. There's a village in South Yorkshire called Wentworth, and it's home to a 45-foot-tall pyramid of stone. It's called the Needle's Eye, and it was built in the early 18th century by the second Marquis of Rockingham. And he wanted to win a bet that he could drive a coach and horses through the eye of a needle. If he could, the implication was it shouldn't be too difficult for him, a rich man, to enter the kingdom of God, whatever Jesus is saying. I'm pretty sure Jesus isn't won over by this trick because it is just simply impossible. No way on earth can it be the case. What makes it impossible? Well, wealth inclines us to become proud, to become self-indulgent, a lover of the world, and our eyes become blinded to our real condition. Just have a listen to Revelation 3, verse 17. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Wealth is a handicap because it creates in us a false narrative about what we think we are. And it accentuates all our other sins. It makes it even more possible to indulge in them. Wealth has the power to create... um, this, this, this false narrative that exists about ourselves, whether we are super rich or, or medium rich or rich or quite rich or not really rich at all compared to those around us. Wealth has the power to limit all of our understandings. To think that we have it made. If we're financially secure, we're spiritually secure. We have no need for dependence on anything else. Salvation is impossible for anyone who holds on so tightly to anything they depend on. You've seen this rich ruler's problem here was money. And what assurance did it really give him? Now ours, of course, could be money too. But it could be people. It could be possessions, passions. Or it could be possessions. It could be people. It could be their acceptance or love or favor. It could be the people closest to us, our family, our close friends. Perhaps it's, it's passions, maybe love or lust, or maybe hobbies. Maybe it's our, our careers, the feeling of importance that we long for. It could even be our role in church, our status amongst our peers. Or it could be possessions, like the rich ruler, money itself. Maybe our house, maybe a future house, maybe our car, maybe our holidays. See, people, passions 
and possessions, they cannot save us. It is impossible. And all of them have the power to make us blind to the reality of who we are, blind to the reality of our sin and for our desperate need for a saviour, Jesus. Jesus' hearers can't quite believe what he's just said. Luke's account here doesn't really capture just how amazed they were at what Jesus says. But Mark uh, shares the same um, encounter of the story. And it really does capture it. Mark says they were exceedingly astonished. I was trying to think of an example where I would be exceedingly astonished at what someone said. This is bad. But the best I could come up with was just imagine... I can't just imagine someone you telling you they don't like chocolate. <laughs> what, what, I, I just struggle to understand that concept. It's completely out of my realm of understanding. And Jesus is here, here, is here in a similar position. They just cannot compute what he's said. It's out of their realm of understanding. Why is that? Back then it was presumed that if you had material wealth, you were blessed by God. God's favor rests upon you. And he's shown that to you by giving you riches. And if you're like this guy, who obviously had some power as well, well, God must really like you. And surely you just need to make sure you're pretty good and you're going to be a shoe in for attaining eternal life. Of course, though, we see actually that doesn't give him assurance. If it did, he wouldn't have come to Jesus with this question about how to inherit it. From the outside, though, this guy looked like he was assured eternal life. His wealth, his power, his goodness made that clear. Would those close to us, watching us, think our goodness or generosity is enough to give us assurance? Not being aware that inside we are holding on so tightly to some idol, we're not actually holding on to Christ. See, Jesus is turning here the whole concept on his head. And so those that are listening are astounded. So if, if the good, the rich, the powerful, those elevated above others, if they cannot be saved, who on earth can be? Jesus says, what is impossible for man is possible for God. See, Jesus is teaching us here that every person's salvation is a miracle. The rich, the poor, the middle class, our material state is irrelevant to our salvation. Only God can rescue us. He's reaffirming what the whole of scripture says. Just take Romans 3, for example. There is no one righteous, not even one. See, we all need a savior. And it's impossible for us to use our resources, big or small, to buy our way to be right with God, to buy our way into his kingdom. They count as nothing. But what is impossible for man is possible for God. It is possible for God to reach down and lift us up out of our desperation and dependence on money or people or possessions and rise us up with Christ. Hebrews 7, 24 and 25 says, Jesus lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. But just as Jesus taught in the passage before this one, we need to be like little children. We must come to him helpless and dependent. 
which means we must let go of the things that we hold on to, somehow thinking that we will earn God's favor, somehow thinking that they will give us assurance of God's salvation. We must let go of those things because they will stop us from holding on to the thing, the person we need to most, and that's Jesus himself. The missionary Amy Carmichael worked alongside Hindus in, in India for, for decades. And she often wrote about her experience in ministering to them. And she once wrote an account of an elderly Hindu lady. She was the head of a, uh, a well-known ha- household. Her husband had died some years before, but she had children and great-grandchildren. And this lady was, as Amy described it, rooted. She was rooted to the caste system. And she had had the golden uh, symbol of the Hindu god Shiva tattooed on her, showing her that, showing everyone that she had sworn a lifelong devotion to him. But Amy describes how this elderly lady was interested in the Bible. And so her and a few of her colleagues each week for a number of months went to read the Bible to her, hoping that she might turn to Christ. One day she says to Amy, I want to be a Christian. By that, I mean one who worships your God and ceases to worship all others. But I cannot break my caste. Amy goes on to explore what that would mean. And it becomes clear that it would mean continuing to smear Siva's sign on her forehead. To continue to be outwardly devoted to this Hindu God. And if she weren't, if she were to break that, she would be ostracized. Amy recalls after she shows her that in the Bible, that the Bible says that that cannot be possible. She says to Amy, she spoke in little, sorry, Amy recalls, she spoke in little short sentences, instinct with intensity. I cannot live here and break my caste. If I break it, I must go. I cannot live here without keeping my customs. If I break them, I must go. You know all of this. I cannot follow so far. So far, I cannot follow so far. This elderly Hindu lady could not let go of the things that she depended on, the things that that rooted her to serve a Hindu God. And of course, listening to this broke Amy's, Amy's heart. She says, my heart is sore as I write. These people have to follow so very far, so very, very far. Are we rooted to things that we are dependent on? Are we willing to follow so very, very far? It will be hard. It was for the ruler. In fact, it was too hard. And he waited away sad. The inevitable question is probably then, why should we? Why should we want to go so very, very far to follow Jesus? Why should, we, why should we let go of our material wealth or whatever else it might be? Why should we want to make ourselves as dependent on Christ as a baby is to its parents? Well, we find when we do, we receive many times as much. We receive many times as much. This is at the heart of Peter's statement in verse 28. He says to Jesus, we have left all we had to follow you. 
And Luke 5 tells us of how Peter, James, and John, they did exactly that. They left everything and followed Jesus, their businesses, their homes, their families. They, they let it all go. Did they leave it for something that would ultimately prove to be impossible, that even this rich ruler could not attain? Well, in response, Jesus makes another remarkable statement. But this time, it is to deeply encourage, to give them hope, to give them assurance. Truly, I tell you, Jesus says to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. What a promise. You, Peter, will gain much more now and in the age to come. In fact, anyone who's given up something of value to them for the sake of God and his kingdom, they will receive many times as much, following so very, very far by letting go of our idols, releasing them in order that we can fully take hold of Christ is always worth it. We are never, ever find that we are missing out. But notice that Jesus' promise is referring to now, to the life that we are currently living. It's not just talking about the future, the new heavens and new earth. It, it, it's now. Jesus is saying here that the believer shall find in Jesus a full equivalent for anything they are asked to give up for him. We'll find peace. We'll find hope. We'll find joy. We'll find comfort. We'll find communion with God. The losses we lose shall be more than counterbalanced by the gains we'll get. We'll get new brothers and sisters in the church. We'll gain new spiritual parents, new children to love. We'll be part of a vast family that cannot be numbered. One commentator explains what Jesus is saying like this. He says, the complete fulfillment of this wonderful promise has been often seen in the experience of God's people. Hundreds could testify in every age of the church that when they gave up everything for God's sake, their losses were amply supplied by Christ's grace. They were kept in perfect peace. They were enabled to glory in tribulation and to take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in distresses for Christ's sake. They were enabled in the darkest hour to rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory and to count it an honor to suffer shame for their master's name. The last day will show that in poverty, in exile, in prisons, before judgment seats, in fire and under the sword, the words of Christ before us have repeatedly been made good. In short, Jesus Christ himself, our communion with him, his family, the hope he brings, shall become vastly more valuable than the people, possessions, passions that we might be holding on to. So we need to hold fast onto, onto, onto Jesus' words here, the promise that he's making when we're considering if there is one thing that we're still holding on to, that we're still dependent upon, that is still keeping us from having the assurance that we have eternal life. Listen to these words 
of our Lord and trust in his promises. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you might be thinking this is a a little bit transactional. You know, I give up something for Jesus and he's going to give me something in return. It's not like that at all. The letting go of something is in response to something much deeper. It's about what or who we love. A few chapters back in Luke, Jesus says, you can't serve both God and money. You'll be devoted to one. You'll love one and you'll despise and hate the other. It's not just about who or what we love, though. It's also about Christ's love for us. Because our love for him is in response to his love for us. Mark, in, this, in his encounter, account of this encounter, adds a couple of words into the text which shows us Jesus' overriding emotion. He says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus loved this rich ruler. Now Jesus, in a sense, was actually a little bit like this man. He too was rich. He too was a ruler. Before he became a helpless baby, born in a manger, he was in heaven, enjoying all its glory and all the treasure that it holds. But for the love of people like this rich ruler, for the love of you, love of me he let it he let it go he became poor in the passage we're looking at next week Jesus tells his disciples what he is going to do because of his love for us he says I'll be delivered over the gen- over to the Gentiles I will be mocked I will be insulted I will be spat on I will be flogged I will be killed Jesus is is stripping himself of all of his glory and going into the the depths of poverty on the cross, stripping himself of his father's love, all for the love of people like this rich ruler, all for the people, all for the love of people like us. He says, I do this for you, for you people who aren't good, who cannot keep the commandments, people who lack assurance, and so seek dependence and hope and on things that are impossible to save them. And his message to you, to all of us, is the same as to this rich ruler. Let go of those things and come, follow me. In a moment we'll pray. But before we do, let's just, take, let's just have a, a moment of, of silence to reflect in our hearts on some of these things. Father God, as we think on the words of your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ, this morning, we pray that you'd help us to see clearly the areas where we are holding on to something, where we're tempted to love something more than we love you. 
Father, we, we trust in the words, in the words of Jesus' promises here, that in giving up something of value to us, we receive many times as much. Strengthen us, therefore, to, to do just that, to let go and to take hold fully of Christ, our Saviour. Father, thank you that what is impossible for us is possible for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.